Good morning. My name is Logan Greer. I'm one of the youth ministers here, and I am really excited to dig into this Bible story with you guys. Uh, Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Uh, Father, I pray that you would do your work in us today. Um, I pray that you'd help us to be honest and humble. Teach us, God, help us not to get what we want out of this, but to get what you want us to get out of it. God, I pray that these wouldn't just be interesting things to think about, but they would be things that change what we believe and how we live. God, I pray that you do this in your great power and your great love through the work of your spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Did you know that you came in here limping? No, I don't mean physically, although that might be true for some of you. Um, I mean your religion is limping along. My religion is limping along. Now, maybe you disagree with me. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But I think after studying this passage that you'll agree. I know I've been limping along. I've been wavering, hobbling, and it's not working. Now, on the other hand, maybe you do agree with me. Maybe you're like, yeah, that, that seems right to me. I feel like it's, I'm limping along, like my religion doesn't work. Maybe it's not all bad, but it's certainly not all good either. But either way, this lame, limping, hobbling through life is where we're at. And now here's what I mean. This series is called Elijah, Just Like Us. Um, but I get this idea from this story that you guys just heard read by my wife that we're not like Elijah, and he's not like us. Now, if, if we're anybody in this story, I actually think we're more like the crowd, that that's who we are. And so I think it would be good for all of us today, instead of identifying with Elijah, the hero, as we sometimes do when we read stories or watch movies, we identify with the hero. I think in this, this story, at this time, Let's put ourselves in the crowd. We're the crowd. Because we're lame. We're limping. It's not working. And I think if you'll give me some time this morning, I'll show you how. So first things first, we need to understand a bit of the historical context of this story. So go ahead and turn or tap in your devices to 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, Verses 16 through 40 is where we're at um, for the whole passage. We're just going to dive into a few different sections of that. So go ahead and go there. While you're doing that, um, I'm going to set this up to you. Uh, So Israel is this theocracy. That means that the God and the government and the people, they're all kind of one big thing. It's not like a race and then you get this governmental system and then a religion over here. It's all kind of wrapped up together. It's a theocracy. This was really common in ancient days. And so that's what Israel is. So they have their God, Yahweh, who chose this people, Israel, to be their God or to be their people, his people. So and, um, and that's how it all works together. And then Israel gets this king, this evil king named Ahab, who does not lead the people to worship Yahweh. And Ahab marries an evil queen named Jezebel, who also does not lead the people to worship God, the Lord. Instead, they lead the people to worship Baal. Baal was a god of rain. So uh, that comes out in the story quite a bit. Baal's has got to reign kind of like with an eye on crops and, and uh, wealth and security and that kind of stuff. So Israel's God, Yahweh, sees his people being led astray by this evil king and this evil queen. And he sends this prophet Elijah to basically declare war on Baal. And one of the ways they want to declare war on Baal is through this showdown on Mount Carmel that is set up and that you guys just heard about. 
Once the people gather on Mount Carmel, Elijah addresses the crowd. And this is, we're going to kind of hang out in this uh, verse 20 is where we'll start. So if you want to go there and read along with me, it says this. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people were completely silent. Elijah's saying, if God is really God, worship him. But if Baal is really God, worship him. There's no neutral ground here. There isn't a third option. And notice Elijah says this hobbling and this wavering. It's actually one word in the original language. And it means kind of falling down lame or limping or sinking in mud, kind of stuck, not moving, not able to move forward, this hobbling and wavering. And this brings us to the first way that we're like the crowd, because we're stuck. We're limping along with a religion that doesn't work because it's intellectually dishonest. Now, let me, let me break this down for you. Elijah says there's no neutral ground, and the people are silent. Why? Because silence is the easiest way to be noncommittal, to have no statement of belief, to just not say it to try to kind of live in the middle. They're silent. And there's this idea that our culture kind of celebrates of this neutral ground, this, this sort of standing on the neutral ground to try to bridge the gap between differing views or opinions. And many of us in this room, even if we said we were a Christian, we might also say, but other religions are fine too. I'm a Christian, but that religion is fine as well. Like, it's all good. It's all the same. And there's this idea that all religions are basically leading to the same place, that no religion has or even should have the corner on absolute truth. No one should be able to claim that they have the one right way. And the illustration that's sometimes used for this is that all religions are paths on a mountain leading to the same peak, and that they're all kind of going the same way. And there's tied to this kind of thinking sort of intellectual bigness, right? This tolerant view of things, this attempt to stand on this neutral ground. We try to treat religions like snow cone flavors, like grape or cherry. They're both good. They're, either one is fine. But it doesn't work, and it leaves us lame and limping, and it's actually one of the most intolerant views we can take. Why? Because in order for someone to say no religion can possibly have a claim on absolute truth means that you have a claim on absolute truth. In order for someone to say that all religions are paths on the same mountain leading to the same place is basically saying that you're at the top of the mountain and you see that to be true. You're saying it's not okay for religions to say they have absolute truth, but it is okay for you to say you have absolute truth. And the very things you won't let a religion do, you end up doing. At least religions acknowledge the things that they are dogmatic about, but this all religions are basically the same is dogmatism without self-awareness. And it doesn't work. It leaves us lame and limping. Another way it's intellectually dishonest is that it's intolerance in the name of tolerance. And here's how. Let's take Islam and Christianity. A core belief of many Muslims is that there can be no physical representation of God, no image made of him. 
but a core belief of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, a physical representation of God. Now, obviously, these two beliefs cannot both simultaneously be absolutely true, yet they are the core beliefs of these, these religions. So if you want to hold this belief that all religions are basically the same, they're all basically leading to the same place, you are demanding that religions gut their core beliefs in order to fall in line with your core beliefs. It doesn't work. It's incredibly intolerant. It's intellectually dishonest, and it leaves us lame and limping, hobbling us. And I think we do this kind of thing in order to fit in better. Like, we want people to like us. We want to be big and generous. And, and so we try to walk this neutral ground or to sit on the fence, to be silent like the people. Because that's exactly what they were dealing with. The God of the age of their culture right then was Baal. But the God of their history was Yahweh, the Lord. And instead of fully committing to one or the other, they tried to sit in the neutral ground and say, both are good, we'll try both. And we're like that crowd if we try to hold both Christianity and another religion or any other religion on the same ground. It doesn't work and it makes us stuck. Another way that we're like the crowd is that we worship false idols. Now, I grew up thinking that Baal was a name for a particular god, like that's its name. And in this particular passage, he is a specific god, the god of rain. But actually, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of evidence to show that cultures could have multiple Baals, that Baal actually has a word kind of meant spiritual lord of something. And so different cultures could have a Baal of wisdom or a Baal of sexuality or a Baal of uh, fertility or a Baal of wealth, whatever it was. And so Baal just kind of represents this worship of something. And the Baal was a way to get that. Now, you could say this is just ancient, unenlightened culture, right? They're worshiping these things. But I think that they're actually being honest about something that's kind of a blind spot for us. They recognize the fact that the things that they were worshiping had spiritual authority over them. That the things that they worshiped, they obeyed. And we tend to ignore that fact. But really, regardless of whether or not you think you're religious or spiritual or not, you have spiritual authority in your life. You are worshiping something. Everybody is worshiping something. You might say, well, I don't worship idols. I don't have a little statue in my house that I bow down to. But do you want to be rich? Why? You might not make sacrifices on an altar to Baal. But are you overwhelmed with fear for your kids? Why? In the middle school ministry, we do this thing called Big Question, Big Answer to teach them the most important aspects of Christianity. It's really cool, actually. One of the big questions we tackle is, what is idolatry? And the answer we teach is this. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. If you are trusting in anything other than God for your hope, happiness, significance, or security... You are worshiping an idol. Now, you guys met my wife earlier. We have a daughter named Llewellyn. She's almost two years old. And when I think about this idea of trusting in something for our hope, oh yeah, there she is. She's a stunner. Okay, when I think of, uh, uh, of trusting in something for our hope and happiness, our significance and security, I actually think of Llewellyn and how she treats her mom. Uh, so 
if you've hung out with my daughter, you know she's like really sweet and really cute until you get between her and her mom. And then she's a monster, right? She goes from nice to nuclear in about half a second if you try to take her away from her mom. Even when Anna leaves her room, it's like the end of the world for Llewellyn. You could say that Anna is Llewellyn's idol. Well, was her idol. Actually, Llewellyn's doing much better now, which is really good because I didn't want to have to confront Llewellyn about her idolatrous behavior. That would have been a really hard conversation. Just really happy she's worked it out herself. A good way to tell if you have idols in your life is to fill in the blanks on these statements I'm about to read. And I actually I would love for you to pull out a pen or open up the notes app on your phone or something because I want us to really tackle this together. I want us to face this. So I'm going to read some statements. There's going to be some blanks, and I want you to really think about it. I want you to write down what you would put in that blank. I think you'll be surprised. So here's the statements. I'll finally be happy if I get blank. I can't be happy unless blank. I don't want to die before blank. After a hard day, all I want is I just want to look at this website. I just want to play this video game. I just want to drink. I just want some food. I just want to veg out. If I can just get this promotion, if my bank account was that number, if I can get this phone or car or whatever, if I can graduate, if I can get married, if I could have a baby, if I can live in this place where it snows more, maybe, if my husband or wife will change in this way, if I can have this experience or this relationship or an answer to this question, Maybe I'll finally be okay. I'll finally be happy. Whatever you filled those blanks in with is an idol in your life. And it reveals what we rely on for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. Or let's flip it around and fill in these blanks. Again, write down these answers. I'd be devastated if blank. There's no point in living if blank. I just don't know how I would ever be able to deal with blank. I'm overwhelmed with fear of blank. If this house doesn't sell, if my spouse ever had an affair, if I can't get this job, if this person breaks up with me or this person dies, if I don't heal, if I'm no longer able to play this sport or do this activity, if my kids commit this sin or struggle with this life, I could never deal with that. I'd be devastated. Whatever you put in those blanks, it's probably an idol, a Baal, because you and I were Baal worshipers, just like this crowd. We come to church, but on the side, we're kind of working this side hustle for our hope and happiness, significance and security. We're wavering and hobbling and limp between two options. What Elijah's calling these people to, what he's saying is this, that God plus something equals nothing. You cannot divide your attention. God plus something equals nothing. There is no third option. But people try all the time to pick God and. When we try to diversify our religion like it's some kind of portfolio to do the Christian thing and then kind of have this backup plan of an idol, we end up with nothing. And it'll cost us everything. God is exclusive. There can be nothing else. 
And whenever we waver between the Lord and idols, it makes us lame. It doesn't work. It leaves us stuck and sinking, slogging through the mud. Okay, so we're intellectually dishonest, and we're idolatrous, but wait, there's more. There's one more way that we're like the crowd, and this one's a little bit surprising. The clue to this one starts in verse 26. I'll read it to you. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. These are the prophets of Baal who did this. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself. Or maybe he's away on a trip or sleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still, there was no sound, no reply, no response. Do you see what's happening here? They're trying to get their God's attention. They're performing for their God. They're raving, shouting, dancing, even bleeding for their God. And this, this one is the most ridiculous of all. It's the most insane, and it's the most insidious, and Elijah knows it. And in fact, he employs some kind of Tony Stark, Iron Man-level snark here to point out how crazy this is. They did this performance for hours, from morning till noon, and then on into the evening until all their time was up. And this, guys, is the last way that we're all limping, hobbling like these people. We think we can get what we want out of God if we perform, if we follow the rules, if we do all the right things, if we go to church and read our Bibles and pray and tell people about Jesus and give money and lead a small group and serve in kids' ministry and read devotional books. We'll even follow like cute rhyming rules that people made up like don't smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls that do. I could go on and on. This list could go on forever. We perform. We dance so that God will pay attention to us, so that he'll answer. We think our performance is what gets us God's approval or love or resources or whatever it is we want. And you know what this is called? Legalism. This is Baal worship. The mark of Baal worship is that the script is flipped. God is here to serve you. God is here to help you. And you're going to pay your dues to make sure it happens. We want to use God to get what we want. We want to turn our relationship with God into a business transaction. Put your behavioral quarters in and pick your prize. A good way, not the only way, but a good way to tell if you're a legalist, if you're trying to bail worship the Lord to think about your response to these situations. Again, think about this. Write down your answers. How do you respond to a situation like this? When you pray something and it's not answered the way you wanted or maybe not answered at all. When you see someone worse than you prospering, how do you feel? When something bad, anything bad, happens to you, how do you feel? How do you respond? 
Legalists respond to these kinds of situations in two different ways. The first one is this, with anger. You're angry. We're angry because we've done everything right. Why can't we get the things we want? We've even prayed about it. We've even used the right words when we prayed about it. We've been good. Why don't we get what we want? Or maybe you feel like, I'm better than that person or those people. Why do they get what they want and I don't get what I want? I feel like I deserve more than them. And you feel like God is being unfair or unkind to you because you've earned a better life than this. Why isn't he taking better care of you? Legalism makes us angry with God because we think that we deserve something that we earned and we're not getting. So that's the first way. The second way a legalist responds to those situations is with fear. Because I must have done something wrong, right? If that's how our relationship works, I must have done something wrong. I didn't confess this sin. Or, or maybe you didn't treat that person right. Or maybe we didn't give enough money. Whatever it is, it fills you with fear and uncertainty. Does God love me? Is God paying attention to me? Did I do something to offend him? Did I earn this? And when we try to perform to earn God's affection, when we're legalists, we're lame, hobbling. Because we're not interested in God. Actually, it circles back around. We're trying to use God to get our bail again. Just circles back around. God is just a means to an end. So we hobble around, dancing and raving, shouting and even bleeding to get God's attention, just like this crowd. Guys, this is bad. I was really convicted by this passage. I'm right there with you. I'm in the crowd. We're intellectually dishonest, we're idolatrous, and we're legalistic. And all these things are ultimately self-focused. We want to appear to be in line with our culture, to appear to be tolerant and enlightened so that people will like us. We want the goods this world says are important, whether that's fame or money or pleasure or wealth or success. We want to use God to get what we want out of him. So what are we going to do? What do we need? What's going to get us unstuck? Stop hobbling. What we need different kind of God. We need a God who is powerful. Now, listen, the odds in this story were totally stacked against God, at least on the surface. Listen to this. The prophets of Baal, there's hundreds of them. The prevailing governmental powers and the popular opinion was with them. The culture was with them. Their altar was already built. It was bone dry. Remember, this is in in a drought, and they even had more time to get done their task. On the other hand, God's team, one guy, a nobody, named Elijah from nowhere, a fugitive from the law, hated by the culture, an old broken down and then rebuilt altar, and lots and lots of water. So much water that it soaked the parched earth and even filled up the trench around it. But in the end, the Baal worshipers couldn't get it done. Not even a peep from old Baal. Then listen to this contrast with the Baal worship. When Elijah gets up, starting in verse 36, it says this. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel 
and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. Oh, Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, oh, Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. God loves stuff like this. It's all throughout the Bible. He loves to have the odds stacked against him. Why? Because it shows his power. I love how kids uh, point out stuff that adults would totally miss because it, it's too obvious or that we would even forget. And actually, in one of those conversations with middle schoolers, the question was asked, what sets God apart from other gods? And a middle school boy raised his hand immediately, and he said, God is real. It's so obvious. But it's incredibly profound because the flip side of that statement that God is real is that the other things we try and worship are not real. Which is to say they have no power. Think about this. Do you really think that looking at more porn is going to make your life better? That getting a promotion is going to give you transcendent hope? That marriage is going to make your problems go away? That having more likes or views or whatever on your social media is going to give you real joy? Really? Has a house or a car ever solved anyone's problems? Has anyone ever been able to be universally liked on the internet? And even if they were, does it matter? Do any of these things have any true power? Can they save you? Is it working? Or are you limping? We need a God who's real, who has power who's the most powerful. A God who can truly give us hope in the midst of our suffering, who can give us joy beyond happiness that transcends our circumstances, who can give us identity and purpose, a reason to live, and then locks it all up in promises that can never and will never be broken. But that's not all that we need. We don't just need a God who's powerful. Power is all well and good, Power means God has the capacity to be what we need. But there's another puzzle piece here because what good is a powerful God if he doesn't care about you? Because God doesn't want to just convince the crowd, convince us that he's powerful. He wants to demonstrate his love. How? Check out verse 36 and 37. I love Elijah's short prayer here. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. Oh, Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Another translation of verse 37 says, Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Elijah prays that the people would know that God is truly God, but not only that, but that God is turning.
turning their hearts back to him. God's great love and God's great power make God great. And it debunks the prevailing worship practices of their day and our day. It screams that God is God and there is no other. God is telling all who would listen, don't be fooled, don't be blind. God is real, God is powerful, and God loves you. God is speaking to us today through this story. This story is a foreshadowing of the greatest expression of God's love and God's power. The crowd that day around Elijah were God's enemies. The only thing they deserved from God that day was judgment. For that fire to fall not on a sacrificial bull, but on them. And once again, we are the crowd. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. That all have sinned. We're all sinful. And we've all fallen short of God's standard. No one is righteous. Not one. We're all hobbling. We're all lame. We're all limping. We're all stuck. And we don't deserve anything good from God, let alone his loving efforts to turn our hearts back to him. The only thing we deserve is for that fire to fall on us, not on a sacrifice. But God fulfilled what this story only hinted at when God himself came as a man named Jesus Christ. And he took the punishment that we deserved. And when that happened, instead of a broken down altar, it was an old rugged cross. Instead of a bull sacrifice, it was Christ himself. Instead of water being poured out, it was the sins of us all. And instead of fire from heaven, it was the wrath and punishment we all deserved. But unlike Elijah's story, the sacrifice was not consumed. No, Jesus was up to this task. Not even the punishment for the sins of the whole world could keep Jesus in the grave. He rose again to bring us new life with God. God wants to do the same thing with us today. He wants to draw us to himself. And he's gathered us here today. I believe that every single one of you are in this room today because God wants to demonstrate his power and love to you today through Jesus Christ. God has brought us all, lame, limping, hobbling, all here today, no matter what your story is, whether this is your first time at church or your trillionth time at church. Will you taste and see and hear that God is good today? Will you see that God isn't some means to an end, but he is the end himself because he's the best. He's our Lord. And because of Jesus, we can stop hobbling. We can confidently claim Christ as our Lord and no other, letting him be who he says he is and submitting to his word above any other authority or influence. We can throw off these false idols that bring no real hope, no true peace, these false gods that have no power and they certainly do not love us. We can rest in the performance of Christ instead of our own performance. We don't have to try to earn God's love. He loves us and he's done all that's necessary for us in Christ. We don't have to bleed for God because Jesus bled for us. Out of all of this reality, we get to live in joyous service filled with purpose beyond ourselves. We obey God, not to get something from God, but because we have something from God, his love. Because he is truly our God, 
We know that in the end, all things will be made right. All the sad things will, be, will come untrue and we can live without fear. You know what? This kind of life probably will end up meeting small groups, praying, giving you resources and studying Bible, uh, serving others, helping the poor, telling others about Jesus, discipling your kids and other people's kids, confessing your sins, but not for any other reason than that we are loved by God and he's turned our hearts to him. And we want to bring his love more fully into the world around us because it's the only thing that actually works. It actually makes sense. And now we kind of come full circle because that kind of life actually looks a lot like Elijah's life. It's made available to us in Christ. So maybe the point isn't so much that Elijah's like us, but that because of God's great power and God's great love shown to us in Christ, we can be like Elijah. We can finally stop hobbling and run. And if you'd like to say yes to that running life, to the love and power of God today, I'm going to hang out down here after the, after the service. I'd love to help you take the first steps in that life. And I'll close with this. There's a scene in one of the Chronicles of Narnia books um, that I'll, I'll read to you that I think it sums up kind of the life of a Christian. Now, if you haven't read Narnia, you totally should. It's awesome. It's got talking animals and great stories and profound truths. So in this, in this scene that I'm about to read, a group of characters come to a place called Aslan's country, and it's basically heaven. And here's what happens. Let me read it. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come, further up and further in. He shook his mane and sprang forward into a great gallop, a unicorn's gallop, which, in our world, would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now a most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run, and they found, to their astonishment, that they could keep up with him. The air flew in their faces as if they were driving fast in a car without a windscreen. The country flew past as if they were seeing it from the windows of an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. If anyone could run without getting tired, I don't think one would often want to do anything else further up and further in to the power and love of God in Christ, my friends. Let us run. Let us say today, as the crowd did in verse 39, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us your great power and great love through Jesus. I pray that we would run in this new life with you, maybe just starting today. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.